Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of 1 John, we're going to be in chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the, the desk in the foyer out there, and it's also, the sermon text is also printed on the little insert in your bulletin. There's a space there for notes if you're the kind that likes to take notes as we go through uh, the, the text this morning. But uh, if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand out of respect for the Word of God, and we're going to read 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. 1 John 2, 18 to 21, give ear to the word of God this morning. John says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you, have all, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, um, sometimes when you're preaching through a book, which I think is the right thing to do, that's why we do it uh, for the most part here, um, sometimes when you're preaching through a book, it's a little bit complicated or difficult to discern you know, how much of, of a passage you should preach through. And I'll admit uh, this is one of those spots. Um, you probably could preach through, could have been, we could have preached through all the way through to, to verse 28. And really verses 18 through 28 kind of is one uh, you know, basic thought. It's, it all goes together, but I, I just thought that it might be kind of hard to go through all that at once. And so what we're going to do, Lord willing, it'll be a good thing. We'll go through this, through this passage kind of one little bit at a time, and we'll try to keep our eyes on the overall context as we go through it. So there might be a little bit of repetition from here and, and a few weeks to come here, uh, but this is what we're going to do this morning. Um, I think this is just helpful to take it bit by bit and not kind of, you know, you don't want to lose the forest for the trees, but you don't want to skip the trees either. So we're going to try to shoot for the, the middle of that and get a little bit of both. Um, you might have noticed as I was reading it, and as maybe you read it before today, uh, that our text this morning includes kind of a, a prominent eschatological element to it. You know, the first thing that, that John says is little children or children, it's the last hour. And then on top of that, what does he mention? The thing that gets everybody's attention. You, you've heard the Antichrist is coming, and you heard even now, you know, many Antichrists have come. So we hear that our ears kind of perk up, most of us. Uh, we're all very curious about those kinds of things about the last times. Uh, and so uh, that, that does require some of our attention uh, this morning. But at the same time, I don't want that particular aspect of our text, uh, which John doesn't really spend time focused on. Um, I, I'm trying to be careful to spend a little bit of time on that to not leave it unanswered. But at the same time, you don't want to let that particular element of the text kind of hijack our attention from John's point. And so my, one of the things I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to apologize ahead of time. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, oh, good, I'm finally going to hear what the Antichrist is and everything I could possibly want to know about it is what the sermon's going to be about. I'm going to disappoint you, uh, so I apologize ahead of time. Uh, what my goal is is to spend our time focused a little bit on that, but focus mainly on what's John's point. Why does John even bring this up in this context? So we're going to try to stick with what John's actually trying to say um, it's always good for a sermon or Bible study if the point of the person preaching or teaching is actually the point of the text. So we're going to do our best to make that be the case this morning and not wander off into uh, 
rabbit trails that may or may not be edifying too much. Um, so you'll notice that John, as he mentions the Antichrist and Antichrist plural, he does not go into great detail about those things, um, certainly not as much detail as some of us might prefer or have liked, and that's because he's not writing, uh, contrary to what we might have hoped, John is not writing to satisfy our curiosity. John isn't just writing, you know, kind of a random stream of consciousness like we sometimes do. You know, I don't know about you, but I used to know how to write letters. When I was in the Navy, we actually wrote letters before email. I remember, I remember putting a stamp on the envelope and writing, you know, I could write a, an actual paragraph and it made sense and it went together. Now we write emails and my emails, half of them, one sentence has nothing to do with the next. You know, it's just random, it's almost like, book of Proverbs, but not good. Just kind of random things strung together with no context. Um, where John's not doing that. John's not kind of going off on different subjects and all of a sudden in chapter 2 saying, ah, oh, Antichrist, I bet they want to know about the Antichrist. Okay, I'll talk about that and then I'll get back to my main point. That's not what he's doing. Um, he's not writing to satisfy our curiosity. He's writing to edify us as believers to equip us to better understand the difficult problem of what we call apostasy, and specifically the apostasy, the falling away from the faith of false teachers. And, and in this particular case, the people he's talking to them, writing to them about, were people that were once in the church. And more than that, probably they were in some way either leaders in the church, maybe even elders, or at least were putting themselves forward as if they should be teachers in the church. And for one reason or another, they left. They were either left or they were cast out because of what they were teaching. And so you can see that that might cause some disturbance among the faith of some of the faithful in the church. They might say, oh, no, if that could happen to them, what's to say that won't happen to me? And I think that's the main reason that John is writing what he is writing here. Uh, these false teachers had once been numbered among the believers in the church, but they had come to reject the truth of Christ, and they were now trying to persuade others in the church to do likewise. They were trying to, to lead people astray, and if you remember in Acts chapter 20, one of the things Paul told the Ephesian elders was, and I'm paraphrasing, but in Acts 20 he tells them, you know, keep a careful eye on yourselves and the church, yourselves and each other. Why? And he says because savage wolves would, would arise from among them. It's, it's, that's kind of where most of these things come from, is even from pastors and elders and others who, who see themselves as such within the church and the visible church today. So we're going to, Lord willing, see three main points in our text this morning. We're going to see, uh, I'm going to use the word, the letter A to kind of uh, be the, the marker for all three. The first point, Lord willing, is the coming of Antichrist or, or the coming of Antichrists. The second point is the problem of apostasy. And the third is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Those will be our three points from the text this morning. Hopefully that helps you remember uh, the three points easily. But the first one, Probably the first thing that jumped off the page for many of you as we were reading it, our text this morning was John's mention of the coming of Antichrist and even of, of the coming of many, he says, many Antichrists. Look at verse 18 again. He says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, this was something they had heard of, maybe from John, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Maybe that's the thing that jumped off the, the, the page at you. The word antichrist, you might know, is only found a handful of times in the entire New Testament, five times in total, all of which appear in First and Second John. No other book in the Bible has that uh, word in it. 
And the way that John mentions it here implies that it was not something new. He wasn't springing something new on the believers in the churches he was writing to. He tells them, as you have heard, right? And that may have been from John. It may have been from other teachers. But the way that John writes what he writes here, it, it, the implication is what? The implication is he didn't go into detail because he didn't need to. They, he expected them to have some basic idea of what he was referring to when he said, you've, remember, you've heard the Antichrist is coming. And he says, we're, we're living in the last hour or the last days kind of phrase, same kind of, of phrase. So he, the fact that he doesn't go into much detail beyond that tells us that wasn't his point, And he expected them to have a basic idea of what he was referring to. Uh, New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce again points out, he says, the word Antichrist may be peculiar to John's letters in biblical literature, but the idea expressed by the word is not. In other words, there's other passages that talk about what we believe is the same individual, the same concept, but they don't. Use, but, but it doesn't use the same word. So we have to look elsewhere in the scripture for more details about what the Antichrist is supposed to, to be, and who, who or who this may, not, may or may not be. Um, a lot of commentators, I think, rightly understand the Apostle Paul to be referring to the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2.3 when he talks about the man of lawlessness that had to be revealed before the coming day of the Lord. So many commentators say that the Antichrist is the same as the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition. I think the King James puts it in that same passage. Now the identity and the historical setting of the Antichrist, uh, there are many different interpretations of what that may or may not be throughout the long history of the church. Some commentators and, and scholars see the Antichrist as yet future, as yet, you know, yet to come to pass, that we are still to expect this person to come on the scene. Others see him as having come already in the past. There are many who believe that as well. Uh, some, you might know, have, have said and speculated they thought it was Nero. You know, and, and it's not an accident that a lot of the people that, that have been accused of or thought to be either the Antichrist or, or a coming of the, of the Antichrist in some way have been those who have physically persecuted, you know, violently persecuted the church. And, of course, Nero fits that bill uh, to a T in many ways. In fact, around the time of the 16th century Protestant Reformation, uh, many of those involved in that Reformation identified the Pope and the papacy, the Roman Catholic uh, papacy, with the Antichrist. Now, you and I might look at that with our, you know, we're living in the 21st century, of course, and we might look at, our, look at that and kind of shake our heads and say, oh, those crazy reformers, how could they possibly think the Pope or the papacy was the Antichrist? Uh, but, you know, if you think about it, if you know your history at all uh, around those, those decades and, and centuries, the, if you consider the violent, the bloody persecution waged against the Protestant church by the Roman Catholic Church, I think you can have a little more sympathy with why they would think that. Like the Roman Catholic Church tried to exterminate in many places the Protestant Church. Like kill. You know, read that as, they didn't just write legislation and make life rough. They killed the leaders of the Protestant Reformation in many places in many times. And so I think that their, their saying the Pope and the papacy was, was the Antichrist sounds a lot more reasonable when you're dealing with that kind of a thing. We've never, we've, none of us have ever had to deal with that kind of a thing, I think, thankfully. But if we had, I think we might be much more uh, open-minded to that kind of a, a thought being uh, written and said. It may interest you to know the original, the original ratified version of the Westminster Confession of Faith 
written in the 1640s, has a chapter on the church. It still does. But the original version actually included a statement in the chapter on the church that explicitly identified the pope as the Antichrist. Here's what the original Confession of Faith, uh, as it was ratified, said in, in chapter 25.6. It says, There is no, head, no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. That's the claim of the Pope, right? He's, he's the earthly head of the church. You know, the, one of the titles for the Pope is the Vicar of Christ, V-I-C-A-R. A vicar is the, the one who's in the place of. He's like the earthly spokesman. What, 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 in other words, what he says is what Christ says. Imagine someone claiming that kind of authority on earth. That's what the Pope's claim is. And so the, the, the writers of the Confession, uh, the Westminster Divine, said, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalteth, exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God? Now you might argue that, well, that's a little, little much. You might say that that's a little extreme. But in many ways, at least the spirit of Antichrist is exactly what they saw in the papacy. And I think it still holds true in many ways today. Now, the Americanized version of the Confession of Faith that was adopted by the American Presbyterian churches in 1788 kind of toned it down a little bit, toned the language down. And this is what our, our version now says uh, since then. It says, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, period. It excludes the whole rest of the statement about the Pope being the Antichrist um, in any way. But, but it's, a, it's interesting to note the original writers of the Confession you know, some hundred Puritan pastors and theologians, they all agreed on that. You know, the confession of faith that you have, and if you don't have a copy of it, there's some paperback copies out there in the foyer. I encourage you to please take one. We'll, we'll buy more if you'll read it. But think about this. The confession of faith was written by, you know, over a hundred Puritan pastors and, and theologians, and they were all in agreement on that point. Nothing in the confession of faith was kind of up for grabs. Nothing, it was, it was a, it's a consensus document. So the fact that they all agreed on that should get your attention. It's that, that's, that was their view of the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy uh, in, in across the board, you could say, in some ways. Now, what does John tell us about these things in our text? And why does John bring it up? You know, I've, I've kind of belabored this point, and I think with reason, hopefully it's not getting annoying. But do you remember what I told you that was John's point in writing this entire letter? The point is, he says in 1 John 5, 13, I've, I've written these things to you, or I write these things to you, who have believed in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So the point is assurance. He wants Christians to know they're right with God. They have the, the sure hope of heaven. There's no losing their salvation. They, they want to have, he wants the believers, he wants you and I to have assurance, a strong sense that all is right between you and God if you're a believer in Christ. So if that's the case, why does John bring the Antichrist? Of all things you could think of, why does John bring the Antichrist up in that, in that context? You might be tempted to think that it's a really strange subject to bring up in a letter that's supposed to be written for us to enjoy the insurance, assurance of our salvation. But I think if we understand correctly his point and where he's going with it in this chapter, uh, I think we'll see that that really is the reason why he brings the Antichrist up in the first place. He does have a point that has to do with assurance of salvation is why he brings it up. Look again at what John says in verse 18. He says that it is the last hour 
And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. It's like he tells you, you it's the last hour. And how do you know it's the last hour? By the things you're seeing right now. By these apostasies of these teachers in the church turning to error and heresy and leaving the church. He's basically telling them that what they were going through with the false teachers trying to harm the church and having departed the faith shouldn't come as a surprise to them. I think in general what's happening here in these churches is these people you know, rise from within the church. Maybe they, were, maybe they were the preachers and teachers and whatnot. And they suddenly veer off into heresy, denying Christ, denying that Jesus was the Christ, all these kinds of things, and teaching this Gnostic heresy from try, trying to, at least at the beginning, from within the church and then leaving. You know, what might you think if you were in that church? Let's say this happens here, God forbid, right? You might think, well, if that can happen to so-and-so, how do I know I'm not going to veer off? How do I know I'm not just going to go off the deep end? If you know, I, I don't know if you've ever known... Uh, a, a pastor or a preacher or a, or a well-known Bible teacher that has gone off the rails and not just disagreed with you. Like we, we all have disagreements on eschatology and all kinds of things, but I mean heresy. I mean somebody who used to look at as this guy was a faithful Bible teacher and all of a sudden they are way off in left field somewhere teaching heresy. They've renounced the church. Maybe you've known a, 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 someone who you looked at as a brother in the Lord or a sister in the Lord down through the years and something like that has happened. All of a sudden, they're, they're giving ear to heresies and false gospels and things. Have you ever had that happen to someone that you know and love and wondered, what in the world, how am I, what am I supposed to do with that? How am I supposed to understand, you know, what, where do I put that box? You know, where do I fit this in my way of thinking of things? Well, that's what John is dealing with here. And so his mention even of the Antichrist that have come was meant to teach them these things and help them understand things better. He says that we were living in the last hour or the last days, and they had already heard that the Antichrist was coming. Again, either John taught them this or someone else had. Uh, and so it should not have come as a surprise to them to see others, even what he calls many Antichrists, coming onto the scene in the spirit or likeness of the final Antichrist. That brings us to the second, the second point, the problem of apostasy. Apostasy is, if I can define it for you, if you don't know what that word means, it basically means to fall away from the faith. It, the, it's, uh, here, if I had a whiteboard, I could do a little grammar lesson. The letter A is what we call the, the, the alpha privative. It's like in the word atheist. If you're a theist, you believe in God. If you're an atheist, you don't believe in God. An apostate, uh, the, word, the Greek word for faith is pistis. kind of sounds like a piston. I don't know why that is. But, but a, apostasy is you put that A in front of the word for faith, basically. So it's no faith or having fallen away from uh, the faith in some way. And the faith basically meaning the doctrine, but also the saving faith that's related to that, that doctrine. So this point is actually very closely related to the first in a lot of ways. For what was it that characterized those many antichrists who were troubling the church? They were those who once professed to hold and to and teach the truth, who had been part of the church, but who had since fallen away and, uh, from the true Christian faith, and they had rejected the truth of Christ. When you read later on in this chapter, John actually mentions people that rejected the idea, the truth, that Jesus was the Christ. They denied the Son, and so John says, if you deny the Son, you deny the Father too. You don't get to have the Father if you deny the Son. And that's what these people were, were doing. They rejected the, the Christian faith. They rejected the truth of Christ. 
In other words, these people, these antichrists that he mentioned, used to be in the church. And they had arisen again from within the church, but had somehow departed from her, whether they left on their own or whether the, the leadership of the church had ex- excommunicated them. We don't know for sure. Look again at verse 19. John says, they went out from us. No, they left us. Sounds more like it's on their own volition, right? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So what is John saying about these teachers having fallen away and teaching false doctrines and heresies and whatever else? Um, What are we to make of all this? How are we to understand these things? How are we to view those who like these false teachers in John's day? One At one time, profess to believe on Christ, at least for a time, uh, give the impression of being really born again, but who later repudiate the faith and even go on to teach contrary things, things that are contrary to the truth of Christ. How are we to understand what happened to them? Have such people lost their salvation? Is that possible to lose salvation? Were they genuinely born again believers in Christ who somehow lost their salvation. That's what many people believe. You know, Arminians believe you can lose your salvation. That is uh, one of the reasons the reformers were so against that, that false teaching. Uh, can genuine believers lose our salvation? And if so, how can anyone in the church hope to have a certain sense of assurance regarding their salvation and the hope of heaven? That's what John is dealing with here in our text. So what is John saying? He is saying here, that those who departed from the faith and denied the truth of Christ were never really genuine believers in the first place. That is what John is teaching and is the consistent message of the scriptures. That's why he says, quote, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So you see what John is getting at here? This may have been disturbing many people in the church, and John's like, no, 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 no. This, this should not come as a surprise to you. It may be discouraging to you for sure, but it should not have come as a surprise. And here's what's going on when this, when this happens. John Stott puts it this way. By their defection from the, from the faith and from the church, by their defection, they have given clear evidence of their true character. In words, they've shown their true colors. You know, and, and in fact, in some cases, you know, there are some who come in you know, kind of wolves in sheep's clothing is the, the picture that Paul paints elsewhere, correct? Uh, some people actually come into the church with these things already in mind. You know, uh, if, if, you've ever been, if you've been a Christian for a long enough time, you have probably met people who have come in the church with an agenda, and they have something in mind already, but they know they have to kind of lay low for a while, you know, bide their time until they can kind of insert themselves into a position of authority in some way or, or to be taught, uh, to be teachers, and then sometimes the, the mask finally comes off at some point, and then all kinds of things happen that need to be dealt with, unfortunately. But I think that is the, the thing that John is kind of talking about here. Now, the scriptures are very clear and consistent that those who persevere in the faith, it is those and those alone who are genuinely believers and are saved. More than once, the Lord Jesus Christ himself says, he who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 10:22. Look also at Matthew 24:13. We often refer to this doctrine as the perseverance of the saints. If you know the acronym TULIP, which we use for the five points so-called of Calvinism, it is the P in the word TULIP. If you're not sure what that, that word, why do we pick a flower? Don't ask me. But a T is total depravity. U is unconditional election. I better get these right. 
L is limited atonement. Uh, the U is, is uh, oh, did I get, oh, oh, the I, sorry, I can't even spell. Uh, the I is irresistible grace. I knew something was wrong. Two loop, uh, two loop, I is irresistible grace. And the P is perseverance uh, of, of the saints. Now, the Confession of Faith, you might know, has a whole chapter on the per perseverance of the saints. And this is how the Confession of Faith defines it, if you want a definition that's helpful. It says, they whom God, this is 17.1, they whom God has accepted in his beloved in Christ, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. That's perseverance of the saints. And we'll say, I'll say this a little bit later on in the sermon. God finishes what he starts. That's basically what the doctrine is. Now the confession goes on to tell us why this is the case, why it is that the saints who are genuine believers in Christ persevere. We persevere because the grace of God that saved us in the first place preserves us until the end in the faith. That's why many theologians, they, they prefer to say the preservation of the saints. Why do we persevere in the faith? Not because we're stronger than somebody else. Not because we're smarter than anybody else or any such thing. It's because God preserves you and I in the faith in the first place. Confession of Faith 17.2 says this. And this statement, it's a little short paragraph. I wish I could go through all the details, but I can't do it this morning. It says, this perseverance of the saints, and again, saints is believers. Saints is not the Roman Catholic version where saints are super Christians. Saints is believers. That's all it means. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy and merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which arises also the certainty and infallibility of our perseverance. That's a, hand, that's a mouthful. But every last thing in there is exactly right. You know, in, in the book of Hebrews, I, I'll let you read it on your own. Hebrews 7.25 talks about that Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. In other words, all the way to the end. That's what the point is. And what, what's the reason the writer of Hebrews points out is that Christ ever lives to intercede for us according to the will of God. Now, unless you're going to believe, which would be silly to think and blasphemous on top of it, Unless you're going to believe that God the Father is going to hear Jesus interceding at his right hand for you to keep you and keep you in the faith and go, nah, no, I'm not going to answer the prayers of my, of my beloved son who, who died for their sins and who I sent forward to be the propitiation for their sins. That's what you'd have to believe to believe we can lose our salvation. The intercession of Christ, not to mention the merits of his death on the cross, are one of the proofs the Westminster Divine said about us persevering in the faith until the end. John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Never. His sheep don't die. His sheep will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So unless, you know, when you were kids and you would give something, and you say, no givebacks, 
or you know those kind of things. Unless you are going to believe that God gives you to Christ and then takes you back, which the Bible nowhere teaches, there's no way to believe a believer uh, can lose his or her salvation and cease to believe. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Philippians 1.6, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Paul says to the believers in Philippi, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What's he talking about? What is the good work that God started in you or began in you as a believer that he's going to carry on to completion? It's your salvation. It started when he, when he brought you to a saving knowledge of Christ, and he will bring it to completion until or at the day of Christ. In other words, again, God finishes what God starts. And if you're a believer, who started that? There's, there's the question. If you're a believer, do you believe that you on your own, without the power and the grace of God at work in you by his Holy Spirit, making you alive from the dead and drawing you to saving faith in Christ, do you believe you did that on your own? Do you believe that a dead sinner, someone dead in their transgressions and sins, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, can on their own make themselves alive with Christ and gin up saving faith on their own? Or is it from God? What does Paul say in Ephesians 2? He says, for by Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, for by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. And then he says, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What's not of yourselves? Your faith. And being saved by grace, the whole thing. Every last bit of your salvation is the work of God. And so what does Paul say? God finishes what he starts. He who began a good work in you, God did that, you didn't do that, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Where did your faith originate? Not in yourself, but in the Holy Spirit of God himself. Likewise, 1 Peter 1.5, Peter says this, he says that we as believers are, quote, kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now that word kept, it's the same word that you would use to describe a military guard. In other words, you are kept secure, you are guarded. Uh, and what does it say? Guarded by the power of God through what? Faith. What does it imply about your faith? It comes from God. God is the one by his power working that faith in you, not just the beginning, but throughout your Christian life. And it's your faith that keeps you united to Christ. And it's God who makes sure that faith does not fail. So how does God keep you secure unto salvation? By working faith in you by his Holy Spirit. In fact, uh, if you care about these things, John Calvin in his institute said that faith or working faith in you as a believer he calls it the principal work of the Holy Spirit. What's the main thing the Holy Spirit does in you? He is your sanctifier and all those things. He is the, 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 the deposit, so to so-called, the guarantee of your redemption at the day of Christ. But he's the one that works faith in you. He is the one that brought you by his almighty power to a saving faith in Christ. Now, the false teachers who were troubling the church in John's day, just like many of those do in our own they as well. They didn't just turn their backs on the true church and try to bring others with them, but they also turned away from the truth of Christ. It's both. Later on in verses 22 to 25, and we'll look at this later on, but John goes on to say this, verses 22 to 25, he says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? 
So he's, he's painting a picture. Here's what these people were teaching. This is what? The Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son also uh, has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. Now, I don't know how many of you have grown up watching some of the more fantastic movies uh, about the end times. You know, I can rattle off a list of them. And maybe when, you, when I say, if we were going to play word association, if I say Antichrist, what comes to your mind? I don't know. Um, maybe when you think of the Antichrist, you think of some kind of horror movie figure of sorts. Uh, that's kind of what a lot of those movies and books tend to, to paint the picture of. But here John says that it is he who denies the Father and the Son. Not some outwardly horrific looking beast of a person or anything. It's somebody who denies the Father and the Son. In fact, what did they do? They denied that Jesus was the Christ. Right? The early Gnostics, the false teachers that John was dealing with in his day, denied that Jesus was the Christ. They rejected the biblical doctrine and teaching of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They denied his two natures, his truly divine and truly human natures of Christ. And so they denied Christ at all. They, they, they believed in a Christ of their own imagination. You know, if, in other words, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but what did the Gnostics teach? They taught that the physical realm was evil and the quote-unquote spiritual realm was good. So what did that, what did that cause them to, to teach regarding Christ? They would say, well... The Son of God can't actually become incarnate. He can't actually become a man because if he does, his physical body is evil. And so they rejected that. They said, well, he seemed to take on a body, but he didn't. And other forms of the same doctrine would say that Jesus was just a man and the Christ spirit kind of came upon him throughout his earthly ministry and then departed from him before he died. That's heresy. It's a denial of Christ, a denial that Jesus is the Christ. They rejected the most essential gospel doctrines regarding the person of Christ. And so what does John exhort us to do? John exhorts us basically not to worry ourselves about the apostasy of those who never really believed in the first place, but rather let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Verse 24. Like the things you heard from the beginning when you heard the gospel, stick to that. There's no Jesus plus something else. There's no what you heard, and then there's new and improved uh, taught teachings about, about Jesus Christ. We are to let what we have heard from the beginning when we heard the gospel of Christ abide in you. In other words, persevere in the faith, in the faith that we have been taught from the beginning. And you could call this test, you know, John's doctrinal or truth test of the genuine Christian faith. I didn't really notice this until this past week working on this text, but if you look at the entire chapter, chapter 2, and sometimes it's translated with a different word. But John uses the word abide at least 11 times in chapter 2. It's the point of the chapter. Abide in the truth. There are those who don't, right? But he's telling us abide in the truth that you have already been taught and learned and believed. And that brings us to the third and final point, the anointing of the Holy Spirit that John talks about in our text. And maybe you're sitting here having heard all this and wondering if what happened to these apostates in John's day you know, could that happen to me? 
if they've departed the faith and done all these things, you know, how do I know that won't happen to me? And for sure, John's readers must have been thinking the same thing. How are we to know that we are going to persevere in the truth of Christ as believers? Look at verses 20 and 21. John says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. It's the Holy Spirit. And you, have, you all have knowledge, or some translations say you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Now remember, the Gnostics, what's that, that word that comes from the word for knowledge? So they were, they were constantly questioning the knowledge of believers to try to upset their faith and lead them astray. So John's like, I'm not writing this letter because you don't know the truth. I'm writing this letter because you already know it when you believed on Christ and heard the gospel preached to you. Uh, that's the reason he was writing it. So we as believers, in some ways he's saying, we are to rest secure in the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. John even speaks of it as an anointing of sorts. And this anointing gives us a sure knowledge of the truth of Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't need some additional work of the Holy Spirit to guide you into a better knowledge of the truth. That's probably what the Gnostics said. Oh, you've heard this, but you, know, you need this higher revelation of, of things that, that those common yokels don't understand. And John's saying, no, you have an anointing that helps you know and understand and recognize the truth of Christ when you hear it. Now, they may have claimed, the Gnostics did, they may have claimed to offer some kind of hidden knowledge uh, of some kind of additional anointing or work of the Holy Spirit that was only available to a select few. That's really what they did. That's what the cults do. So many of the cults do is they appeal to your, your ego. You know, it, it's kind of like the same, it's, it's kind of a, of the same vein as gossip. Why do we like gossip? We shouldn't. But why do we, why do sometimes, why are we tempted by gossip? Or tempted by inside knowledge that others don't have? It's a, it, it, it appeals to your ego, doesn't it? You know, part of it is like, well, if so-and-so's having something bad, I feel better about myself. But it's inside knowledge. Have you heard such and such? The same thing happens theologically in, in a much greater sense. They were like, oh, those other Christians, they don't have this deeper knowledge that we have. Uh, you have to join our group to have this, this inner knowledge. Like, that's how the cults work. They operate on, on the basis of your ego. And they tempt you against the truth by doing that very thing. Now, John tells them that they have an anointing, that the believers do, of the Holy Spirit. And so all of us who believe have a right knowledge of the truth of Christ. John even says he writes again because they already knew it. And that anointing of the Holy Spirit that God gave them, and God gave you if you're a believer, brought them to a knowledge of the truth. And later on in verse 27, we'll look at this later on, but verse 27 John says, But the anointing that you received from him, from God, abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, some in kind of hyper-charismatic circles have taken this passage to mean that we don't need pastors and teachers at all because the Holy Spirit will just teach us all truth kind of thing. Now, I think that should be obvious on the surface why that's wrong. What's John doing in this letter? He's teaching them, right? John's not saying, by the way, you don't even need me, an apostle, because you have the Holy Spirit. That's not how this works, right? But he's saying that, that, that the Holy Spirit teaches them in such a way that they don't need anybody to teach you something else. There's nothing to be added other than what we have in the scriptures uh, that we need to know and believe uh, for salvation. Um, 
John is, is teaching in this letter, and again, you know, jokingly I would say, well, I wish if this were true that you don't need any teachers, it would make my sermon prep a lot easier. I could just relax and let it, you know, let it, whatever comes to mind come out of my mouth. Maybe it feels like that's what's happening uh, sometimes already, but uh, that's not what the Bible teaches. It isn't what John is saying. Um, and so as believers in Christ, we should always be, I think, suspect in a good way of anybody who comes to us claiming to hold forth anything that sounds like you know, the secret to the Christian life or the secret to success or the victorious Christian life or the prosperous Christian life. Anything that sounds too good to be true, shortcut-wise or secret-wise, uh, there's probably something wrong with it. You know, just abide in the truth that you have heard from the beginning when you heard the gospel. What you and I need as believers, we prayed about earlier in the service, we need to be further established and strengthened in the knowledge of God that we already have in the gospel and in the word of God. That's what you and I need as believers in Christ. Peter tells us in Second Peter 3.18, we use this as a benediction from time to time. Second Peter 3.18 says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's how Peter closed his second epistle, was encouraging them to grow in what they've already learned of Christ, to grow in grace and knowledge of Christ. Amen.